We're going to look at this command of Christ concerning others found in Matthew 5. Look with me at verse 23 and 24. I'll read 23 and then we're going to read verse 24 together. The Bible says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee together, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come offer thy gift. The uh, title of the message this morning, we're looking at the command of Christ to go and be reconciled with others. Go and be reconciled with others. Lord God, would you guide our time this morning, guide me as I preach. But Lord, if I preach with your power and the sermon falls on uh, hard uh, soil or fallow ground, then Lord, uh, to that person it it makes no difference. So Lord, help me to preach what you'd have me say. But then, Lord, help each one to gather those things into their heart that they need. Lord God, so much relationship advice is going to be given today from the Bible. But, Lord God, all of that means nothing if we're not willing to put it into practice. So many folks here today have hurt, broken relationships. And, Lord, they navigate through life by walking around people that they don't like or don't get along with. Lord God, this is not your plan. It's not your way. It's your desire that we pursue peace with all men. And so, Lord God, show us today where those relationships are broken. Reveal to us where it is our fault. And, Lord, help us to do our part, Lord, to live in peace with others. And, God, some here today are going through some, some current circumstances of relational hurt that's ongoing or fresh. And so, Lord God, I pray that you would pour your grace upon them and help them. A sermon like this can be difficult to hear, but, Lord, the principles all apply still the same. But, Lord God, guide us and help us. Bless us during this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, of all of the subjects in school that I liked the least, literature class, literature class was probably my least favorite. Uh, How many of you in here are like me? You just really didn't enjoy literature class. Hold your hands up. I guess the rest of you loved literature. You just loved it. How many enjoyed literature? Raise your hand. Now, come on, folks. Some of you didn't raise your hand to either question. How many didn't understand my question? All right? All right. So, um, uh, listen, I didn't enjoy literature class. Uh, those of you that did enjoy literature, how many of you know the name Elizabeth Barrett? Anybody in here recognize? Hold your hands up. Elizabeth Barrett. Very good. All right. How many just lied right now? All right. Um, <laughs> Uh, this, the, the opening illustration involves Miss Barrett, Mrs. Barrett, Mrs. Barrett Browning. Uh, a childhood accident caused her to lead a life of semi-individualism before she married Robert Browning, also a man of literature, in 1846. But there's more to the story. Listen to this. In her youth, Elizabeth had been watched over by her tyrannical father. And that word tyrannical is no exaggeration. When she and Robert were married, their wedding was held in secret out of fear of her father and his disapproval. After the wedding, the Brownings felt endangered and so they sailed for Italy where they lived for the rest of their lives. But even though her parents had disowned her, Elizabeth never gave up on that relationship. Almost weekly, she wrote them letters. But not once did they reply. Elizabeth found all of her letters, or rather, uh, let let me back up. After ten years, she received a large box in the mail, and inside that box were all of the letters that she had sent her parents. Not one of them had been opened. 
Not one of them had been opened. Ten years of trying to reconcile, and not one letter had been opened. Today, those letters are among the most beautiful and classical English literature. Had her parents only read a few of the letters, the relationship with Elizabeth very well may have been restored. Listen up, church. God wants reconciled relationships. He does not like it when a a brother, sister, a child and parent, he does not like it when siblings in Christ are at odds with each other. That is not his desire. That is not his command. John chapter 15 and verse 10. Listen very carefully to these verses. Jesus is speaking here. He says, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in His love. Now, this might be one of the most exciting promises found in all of the Gospels, right here in verse 11. Listen to this verse. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. We live in a time where people are very broken. How many of you here would love to have the joy of Jesus in you and have it remain full at all times? Raise your hand if you want that. If your hand's not up, you are the most miserly Scrooge-ish. Amen? We all should want that. Now, whatever comes next is the command of Christ that we need to do this in order to have the joy of Jesus in our heart and for that joy tank to be full and overflowing. Here it is. Listen carefully. Verse 12. Listen. He says this. This is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. There it is. We're to love one another. So, as we reconcile with those who have hurt us or that we have hurt, we are, in essence, clearing the way for our joy to be full. Imagine you have a dying father. And uh, this dying father is beloved of all of his children. There's only one issue with the family. All of the kids deeply love dad, but all of the kids don't like each other. All right, There's all this inner squabbling and fighting. These kids are adults now. And they're not getting along, and they haven't gotten along for years, and the, the, the divide runs deep in the family. And Dad seems to be the only unifier in the home. Dad's on his deathbed. Dad calls all the kids in as he's getting ready to die. And so all the kids are there, and, and they're sort of working around each other, and, and they're, they're ignoring each other, and, and they're getting along, but just barely. They're, there's clearly tension in the room, but they're focusing on Dad and loving Dad. And Dad, as he's dying, he addresses the elephant in the room. He says, listen, I want everybody to listen up. I want everybody to listen up. He said, I know you all don't like each other, but I have one dying wish. You know what that dying wish is, don't you? What's the dying wish? I want all of you to get along with each other after I die. Reconcile your differences and make it work. Make it work. Figure it out. Get along with each other. And you know what God's will is? God's will is that you and I, you and your siblings in Christ, you and those within your family, you work it out. Figure it out. It's not okay for you... It's not, thank you, it's not okay for you and a sibling in Christ to remain at odds. You say, well, you don't know what he did to me. You don't know what she said to me. Doesn't matter. 
It's God's will for you to work it out. And listen, if you don't, then this is one of the last commands that, that Jesus gave. John 15 is one of the last commands Jesus gave right before He went to the cross and before He ascended to heaven. In essence, we're looking at a deathbed wish of Christ and we're saying, yeah, I'm not interested. Now, how rude would it be? Listen, listen. How rude would it be for these kids with their dad dying to say to Him, yeah, no, I'm not interested. And we'd look at them and say, that's selfish. You guys need to figure this out. You, you guys need to figure out how to love each other and get along with one another. You Listen to this statement. This is a strong statement, but this is a biblically accurate statement. Listen up now. You cannot be right with God if you are not right with your brother in Christ. You cannot be right with God if you are not right with your brother or sister in Christ. You cannot have fellowship with God until you restore relationship with your sibling in Christ. Now watch this, alright? Brother Chupik sitting down here on the second row. Brother Chupik and I have never had a problem with each other as far as I know. We've always loved each other, gotten along. But let's say that Brother Chupik did something that offended me and I just decided I was going to stick my fingers in my ears or put my head in the sand and I was just going to completely ignore it and I was going to pretend as though there was no issue but deep down inside I've got a problem with him. All of a sudden now, because I have a problem with him, I have a problem with God. You listening? Until I fix it this way, it can't be fixed this way. This has got to get right before this can be right. And we want to run through life with all these broken relationships and then fall on our face and expect things to be right with heaven. And God says, things are not right with heaven until you fix things with your fellow man. Now, there are times where uh, in my life I've had a problem with somebody who is saved and I've gone to them and I have tried to fix it and they are not interested in fixing it. And you know what? You can't fix it. If the other person doesn't want to fix it, you just can't fix that problem. But you know what? You can be ready when they're ready for it to be fixed. And your heart needs to be ready. You need to live peaceably with all men. Let me remind you what Jesus said in the same sermon in Matthew 5. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers. for They shall be called the children of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. We are to pursue peace in our relationships. Now, I preach this sermon today, and I have a group of people sitting in front of me. And let me tell you what I know about people. All right, I've been a pastor. I've been pastor here. Next week, I'll celebrate seven years of being the pastor of White Oak Baptist Church. June 26 was the day I was. Uh, June 26, 2016, was my first day uh, installed as pastor. Next week will be June 25th. So technically, next Monday, but for all practical purposes, next Sunday, I'll celebrate seven years of being a pastor. Prior to being a senior pastor, I was a Spanish pastor for four years, and I worked with people directly there. And uh, and then even uh, in all those years of being an assistant pastor and a pastor, I've been in church ministry. Uh, going on now 15 years of my life. And let me tell you what I've learned about people. People have problems with people. People have problems with people. Someone once said, man, church work would be so easy if it weren't for all these people. <laughs> and you know what else there wouldn't be without people? Church work. Alright? People are messy. And I don't just mean your kid, your 7th grader that can't keep his room clean. I mean, relationally, people are messy, right? And uh, we get a lot of our bad habits from our parents growing up. I find that uh, folks deal with problems one of two ways. They either want to be a shouter or a powder. A shouter or a powder. I'm a shouter. I don't mean like I yell. 
I mean, I have done that, but that's not really what I mean. What I mean is, if you do something I don't like, I'm probably going to come get in your face and tell you I don't like it. All right? Right away. Okay? My wife and kids know this about me. Right, April? All right? They know this about me. If I don't like your behavior, I'm just going to tell you straight in your face, I don't like your behavior. But then you have the powder. What's the powder? The powder doesn't tell you straight in your face. The powder gives you a passive-aggressive cold shoulder. All right? This is the pouting. This is the internalizing. What's wrong? Nothing's wrong. Yes, something's wrong. You haven't talked to me in 14 days. What's the problem? All right, what's going on here? Right? And you have the powder. So you have the shouter and you have the powder. And listen, uh, I know this is that some people are raised in homes where when there's a problem that's been had, we don't talk about the problem. We just move on and pretend as though the problem never happened. And then uh, we never, there's never any apologies given. Uh, there's never any reconciliation. There's never any changing in behavior. We just uh, uh, repeat the same problem maybe a month later. And then we go through this cycle of offending, ignoring, and then we let the ground sort of heal. And then we offend and we ignore. And listen, this is not God's plan. It's not God's plan. And uh, we bring those uh, behavioral patterns into a church, and now all of a sudden we're clashing with someone, and instead of going and making it right, we just think, oh, well, they'll get over it. And you know what? They never get over it. And years later, that person's still holding on to something you said or did because you and your pride would not go and deal with it. You know what God wants? God wants us to be reconciled with one another. God wants us to look someone in the eye and address this Head on. So uh, let, let's look at three thoughts out of Matthew 5. We're going to be in verse 21 down through verse 27, and uh, we're going to take it two or three verses at a time. We're going to look at three thoughts about this topic of getting along with each other and being reconciled to someone who we have offended. Number one, number one, Christ's prohibiting of hatred. Christ's prohibiting of hatred. If you're visiting this morning on the back of your bulletin, you'll find a fill-in-the-blank outline. Let me encourage you to get a pen and take notes with us as we go. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5. Look at verse 21. Christ's prohibiting of hatred. Look at verse 21. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. And so God is telling us here uh, to stay away from hatred. Hatred. He prohibits hatred within these sibling relationships. All right? So let's take this apart. Letter A, notice hatred's emotion. Hatred's emotion. Um, I don't think anyone uh, wakes up and decides that they want to be hateful towards someone else, right? I don't think anyone wakes up and says, hmm, who today am I going to decide to hate? You know, hmm, let me see here. Um, Brother Scott, I grabbed him by the collar a couple weeks ago, so, you know, in church. Um, Brother Scott, you know what, I just don't think I like Scott today. You know what, I think I'm just going to choose to hate Scott Mansfield. Nobody does that, right? Nobody wakes up, picks a name out of that, and says, you're my target today. Uh, now, you may be a vitriolic person who pours out your anger and wrath, and you may act hateful toward complete strangers, but uh, you don't just wake up any morning and just pick and choose uh, to be hateful. In fact, when I was a little guy in church, I would sit and listen to preachers preach against uh, hating people, and they would talk about, you know, if you hate your brother, that's breaking the spirit of the 
the law of murder and, you know, it's the same as murder. And we're going to get into that verse in 1 John a little bit later in the message. But I would hear that and I would sit there in church and I would feel so pious. I would think, oh, I, I'm, you know, I'm like seven years old. I'm like, oh, I don't hate anybody. I I don't hate, of course I didn't hate anybody. I was only seven years old. I mean, who was I going to hate? I hadn't had anybody really hurt me or offend me. But you know what the truth is, is that as I got older, it got easier to hate people. In fact, I doubt there's anyone here over the age of 20 that hasn't at some point in your life struggled with hating somebody. Because to live life is to get offended and hurt and to battle with feelings of hatred. And you know what the reality is? The Bible sets the bar for hatred much lower than where we, our culture puts it. Our culture has this bar that, you know, if you want to kill somebody or you want someone dead, then that's hatred. But we're going to see, according to the teachings of Christ, that that's not exactly where the bar is. In fact, it's, it's much higher than wanting someone dead. How does someone get to a place where they hate someone? Well, there is a process that takes place. A process of undoing that leads to hatred. I'm going to go out on a limb right now and say this. There are folks in this room right now, you have hatred in your heart towards somebody. And I hope today you'll see how you got there. And I hope today you'll learn how to get out of that mess. Because whether or not someone has wronged you, hating them is also a sin. And you're living in sin by living in hatred. I don't say that to condemn you. I say that to warn you and to help you to know you need to move away from hatred. So how do we get from hunky-dory life is great to I hate that person's guts and can't stand them, uh, the, the very thought of them. How do we get to that point? Let's watch the process of the emotional unraveling. If you're taking notes, these will not be on the screen. Let me encourage you to find a place to jot this digression down. Right? Notice the process into hatred. Notice first unmet expectation. Unmet expectation. Now we all have expectations built into just about every relationship. Children uh, expect some things from their parents. You know what? When my kids uh, pour a bowl of cereal and they open up the refrigerator and there's not a gallon of milk there, you know what they look at us and say, where's the milk? And I want to look at them and say, well, why didn't you buy a gallon? You know what? How come I got to always buy the milk? How come you don't buy the milk? Why do I got to do it, right? Uh, kids expect mom and dad to pay for the groceries. And listen, these expectations from children to parents begin at birth. You know what a child expects of mom? Expects mom to feed them. And you know how I know the child expects that? Because if you don't, they scream and cry until you do so. That's expectation. That's instinctual. But not only the feeding them, but the changing of them and the holding of them and the consoling them and the dressing them and the bathing of them. And as they get older, uh, they are expecting mom and dad to teach them morality and right and wrong and, and to put boundaries around them. And the reality is that not only do children have expectations on parents, but parents then begin to put expectation on children. This is natural and normal. Expectations are a part of every relationship. How about the employee employer uh, um, uh, relationship. I bet if you are an employee, then you expect something landing in your bank account every payday. Do you not? What if you woke up on payday and you open up your bank app and you, again, you have direct deposit set up and you open up your bank app and you look and your paycheck hasn't been deposited. Ooh, the blood begins to boil. Ooh, what's going on here? You know what you do? You swipe out of the, the bank app and you open up the messages app and you open up a thread to your boss and say, where's 
my, help me church, money. Right? Maybe you're a little more tactful than that. Where's my money? There's expectations you put on your employer. You expect them to pay you. And you know what? Uh, your employer has the expectations that they put on you that they expect you to hold to. Now, listen, this is true about every relationship. Did you know that we put expectations on complete strangers? Here's one for you. Someone who's driving slow in the left lane. Does that drive you crazy? How many here that drives you crazy? Raise your hand. If your hand's not raised, can I tell you why? Because you are the driver in the left lane. I'm teasing, of course. You know, um, when I'm going down the road and someone's driving slow in the left lane, I just, you know, kind of move around them. And, and if I can, I move around them and go. But I, I see folks who will get right up on their tail and turn their high beams on, right? And, and they could just go around, but... It's the principle of the thing. You know, you got to force them to move over. And, and, and listen, uh, we put expectations on people we don't even know. How about this one? You're at a restaurant and the server is late getting to your table, right? You're seated and you're just kind of waiting and waiting. Finally, they come over. Oh, I'm so sorry. I had this and that going on. And then they take your drink order and then they take your food order and then they bring you your drink and then they bring you your food and then you never see them for the rest of the meal. That ever happened to you? How many of you, when uh, you run out of drink, you're like me, you start slurping the bottom of the cup as loud as possible to get their attention? Uh, over here, I'm out of, you know, I'm out of Coke Zero, bring me another one, please. Or, or you tell a server, hey, can you get my server and find out, you know, they come back and, you know, they smell like cigarette because they're outside smoking a cigarette. Well, they should have been waiting on your table. We put expectations on everybody. And you know what? When those expectations are not met, this begins the unraveling of a relationship. Really quick here, uh, for some of you, what you need to do is you need to adjust your expectations. And let me explain why here next. Unmet expectations, if you're taking this down on uh, notes, write this down. Unex unex unmet expectations leads to frustration. Frustration. That's the next step in the digression. Frustration. Um, if you're frustrated, it's because you have unmet expectations. That's the only reason why you're frustrated. Somebody did not do what you wanted done or did not hold to a standard that you wanted. And that has driven you to a place where you're frustrated. If you're frustrated, a good way to solve the frustration is to work backwards to where the expectation is unmet. And then you need to make a choice. You either need to adjust your expectations or you need to help the person adjust to meet your expectations. That's the only way to eliminate frustration. All right. Uh, some of you in here, some of you, some of you uh, moms or wives in here, you need to just go ahead and adjust your expectations right now. Your husband's going to get a pair of socks this morning for Father's Day, and come tomorrow, they're going to be laying on the floor in your bedroom. Just adjust your expectations that you're going to pick them up for them. I'm not picking them up. They can stay there until they rot on the floor. Right? I'm going to yell at them every time they leave. Adjust those expectations. So where does frustration, frustration comes from? Unmet expectations. And you know what? Uh, he, uh, Proverbs thirteen twelve says this. Hope deferred maketh the heart 
sick. We have a hope. We have an expectation. It goes unmet. And then we become frustrated. Many people walk through life and they are frustrated at every turn. They're frustrated with traffic. They're frustrated with the server. They're frustrated with the barista who made their coffee. They're frustrated with... And if that's you, you're spoiled brat. They're frustrated with their kids and spouse. Uh, They're frustrated with their employees or their employer. They live with unmet expectations and that causes them to be irritable at best. So, unmet expectations leads to frustration. Write this down, frustration. Frustration leads to anger. Frustration leads to anger. You don't deal with that frustration, eventually you're going to get angry. So many people are angry. They are quick to snap and yell at people. They are vitriolic and they're moody. They're like a volcano with frustration always boiling right under the surface. Occasionally they lash out and they pour their anger onto others. And to be clear, God condemns anger outright. He condemns anger outright. Listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Listen carefully. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. We're to put off all anger. Uh, not hold on to some of it and not justify some of it. And if that's not enough for you, Colossians 3.8 says, But now ye also put off all these. Imagine someone taking off a wretched garment and putting on a clean garment. What is the wretched garment we are removing? Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, from filthy communication out of your mouth. Jesus says we're to take off anger. And by the way, Jesus sets the threshold for murder right here at anger in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. And by the way, you don't have to be yelling and screaming at the top of your lungs to be angry. I've known some people who can be very controlled of their emotions and be very sharp with their tongue. And boy, they really know how to use their tongue and slice someone up without ever raising their tone. And you know why they're doing it? Because deep down inside, they're a boiling volcano of anger. And they know how to use that tongue to rip somebody to shreds. Our anger is a sin. It is a sin. And God says, He that is angry without a cause... Uh, it has broken this command. In fact, look back at verse 21 of Matthew 5. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Anger is the beginning stages of hatred. Maybe you do not hate the person to whom you are showing anger, but if you lash out in anger on a regular basis, then you, my friend, have a hatred problem with somebody somewhere. So unmet expectations leads to frustration. Frustration leads to anger. Anger leads to bitterness. Write this down. Anger leads to bitterness. We see this happen to Esau. Esau is a classic example of everything I'm preaching. His expectation went unmet when uh, his father blessed Jacob instead of him. And 
that led to a great frustration that his brother had not only taken the blessing, but had also earlier taken the birthright over a bowl of chili. And then his frustration led to an anger. In anger, uh, he's, he's threatening to kill his brother uh, after his father dies. And we know that anger settles into his soul. And Hebrews 12 tells us that not only was he angry, but he became bitter, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. Speaking of Esau, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Watch this. The seeds of unmet expectation land in the soil of your heart. They begin to sprout downwards in the form of frustration, and then deeper into the form of anger, and then up from that shoots the sprout of bitterness, and your whole soil of your heart is defiled because you are a bitter soul. When I think of that word bitter, I think about someone who has eaten a hot pepper way up on the scoble scale. Anybody here ever had a pepper that just about sent your body into traumatic shock because it was just so hot? Anybody here know what I'm talking about? Has anyone been tricked into eating something like that? All right. Boy, that's terrible. I did that to my sister one time. and um, Pray for us. Amen? Uh, no, we're good now. But um, I did that to her and caused all kinds of problems. But, you know, when that, that pepper is in your mouth and um, your tongue is on fire, someone can say, hey, don't drink water. That'll make it worse. But you know what you're looking to do? You're looking to get anything on your tongue that will help. And bread and milk is the best, right? But you know what? It goes in and your whole body is Filled with bitterness. And some of you in here, it wasn't just a little unmet expectation that grew and grew and grew into bitterness. You literally had somebody do something to you that was really traumatic and really awful and put your whole system into shock and put bitterness in your soul. I'll say this, to experience bitterness for a moment is not sinful, but to hold on to that bitterness, boy, that becomes a major problem. We've got to learn how to uproot that bitterness before it defiles us outright. Unmet, unmet expectation leads to frustration, which leads to anger, which leads to bitterness, which leads to hatred. Bitterness leads to hatred. First John 3.15, the apostle wrote, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hatred of a brother is an emotion that God has forbidden for those who are saved. Hey, look up here at me this morning. Who in your life is it that you, if they were to walk in this room right now, your whole spirit would get sideways? There's an animus in your heart against them. There's a dislike in your heart toward them. There's ugliness in your heart toward them. Who is it? Who is it? You see, the Bible tells us that we're to deal with this that this is not healthy, that this is something that God despises, that He equates with murder. Letter A, we see hatred's emotion. Letter B, notice hatred's expression. Hatred's expression. Verse 21 deals with the emotion. Look at verse number 22 of Matthew 5. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother... Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. So I've heard this verse much of my uh, church life, and 
I've heard that word rocket. Never known what it meant. Never knew what it meant. I, I still don't know that I totally have it figured out. The closest thing I could come up with is that word raka comes from an Aramaic, an ancient Aramaic word spelled a little bit different, still pronounced raka. Here in our Bible, it's R-A-C-A. The Aramaic word would have been written R-A-Q-A. And the Aramaic word uh, uh, raka means empty or worthless. Empty or worthless. Now, uh, there is jesting and being funny. Some of you here like to pick on a brother or sister or a loved one or a very close friend. You might name call and pick back and forth. Let me be very careful here. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Don't get, don't, I, I think some people, and this is really where um, uh, we get, we can get off track if we're not careful. Some people get so technical with the Bible, they miss the spirit of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is talking about speaking to people in an angry spirit or angry tone. Right? If I call my brother on the phone and I'm, you know, calling him a bunch of names and he's calling me a bunch of names and we're laughing back and forth, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about you calling some of these names out of a spirit of anger. Do we have an equivalent to Raka, worthless, empty in English? It's amazing. Insults and angry expressions really haven't changed over thousands of years and even cultures. How about saying something like this? in our current culture, out of an angry tone. Telling someone in anger, you know what you are? You're good for nothing. You know what that's calling them? Worthless, isn't it? How about this one? You're a worthless piece of trash. Or, I don't think you have anything between your ears, do you? Is it empty up there? How about this one? You are a waste of God's precious resources. Pastor, how long did it take you to come up with those? I'm a sinner. It took me about 20 seconds. And I could have come up with more. And when we're angry, we can say some very nasty things. That word, thou fool, telling someone they're stupid or calling someone an idiot, no different. It's no different. The day you got saved, God called you to put away a froward and nasty tongue. Now, I am an American boy through and through. I was born in Indiana, the heartland of America. I grew up in the southeast where they fly all kinds of flags. Amen? And before you go picking on them for their Confederate flags up here in New England, we, we fly some pretty controversial flags up here, do we not? Just drive around in June and look and you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, but I've got I've got uh, American boy that runs through me through and through. I'm a big Bill of Rights guy. Any fans of the Bill of Rights here today? Aren't you glad? What's wrong with the rest of you? Amen. If you don't know what the Bill of Rights are, go pick up the Constitution and read. Uh, but uh, you know what I love about the Bill of Rights? One of the one of the rights that we have in there is the freedom of speech. Aren't you glad we have the freedom to freely express in our country? Do you know that Christians don't have? the same level of freedom of speech as the lost do? Did you know that God puts limits on what we can say? And when we say these things, we violate Scripture? Did you know that a Christian ought not curse? Did you know that a Christian ought not take God's name in vain? Hey, I got one for you. Are you listening? Did you know that a Christian shouldn't gossip or slander? Did you know that a Christian... Ooh, I'm going to step on all our toes on this one. Christians shouldn't complain. God bless you. 
We don't have the same level of freedom of speech that the Bill of Rights offers Americans. You say, well, Pastor, where does the Bible say we can't do these things? Boy, I'm so glad you asked me that question. Listen to Ephesians 4, verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Well, Pastor, qualify that. All the lawyers in the room, qualify that. That word corrupt is subjective. How do we know what's corrupt? Well, again, I'm glad you asked because the rest of the verse is going to qualify it for us. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but, there's the contrast, that which is good to the use of edifying. The Spanish word for building is edificio. It's the idea of building up. Uh, it's an edifice. It's a, it's a building uh, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Listen to me now. If your speech is not building someone up, if your speech is not edifying, then it is by default corrupt and should not proceed out of your mouth. How about verse 31? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, and watch this, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Galatians 5, 19 says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. They're continued in verse 20. Idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies. You know what? Hatred, variance, emulations all have to do with our heart and the expression of hatred from our heart. When we speak evil against a brother or sister in the, uh, in the Lord, we are expressing hate. And Jesus Christ directly forbids this behavior. Can I just get real low, put it right down on the bottom shelf? Look up here. You may know something bad about somebody else. You do not need to be in someone else's ear Texting about it, talking about it, vaguely posting on social media about it, making like decisions on it. You don't need to be doing those things. That is not what God has called Christians to do. These things are hateful, and Christ prohibits hatred. Number one, Christ's prohibiting of hatred. Number two, notice Christ's prioritizing of reconciliation. Christ's prioritizing of reconciliation. We have some babies in the room this morning. We want to make sure they feel welcomed and loved. Do your best to pay attention uh, around them. We're glad they're here and uh, we love them. And uh, if you need any help, we have some folks in the back to be happy to help you, but you're welcome to stay. Number two, everybody hang in there with me. Christ prioritizing of reconciliation. Look with me at verse 23 of Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew 5, verse number 23. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, look here what it says, focus in with me, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Quickly here, notice letter A, our offenses. Our offenses. Now, two weeks ago, we, we preached on forgiveness, and uh, we spent quite a bit of time talking about that word offend, and we said to offend means to trespass against or to trip up. We talked about forgiving those who have offended us. Now, you may think, well then, Pastor, why are we back on this this week if we've already addressed it two weeks ago? And that's my point. If you're like me, then you're really good at keeping up with the offenses that others have done to you. You could remember in great detail 
everything that someone said to you or did to you that hurt your feelings. Watch this now. Are, is your memory as sharp about the offenses that you've given to others? I have husbands and wives come into my office for counsel. And you know what they're both really good at doing? Telling me why the other one's an idiot. They're not so good at telling me what they did wrong. We are excellent at recalling what other people do to us. But we're not so good at remembering what we've done to others. Look closely at verse 23 and notice what it says. Because until this week, studying this passage just went right over my head. Look at verse 23. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and, thou, that, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee. This is not, someone offended me, I need to go fix it. This is, I have offended someone else, and I need to go make it right with them. Right now... Who in your life is upset with you because you have offended them? Who have you hurt? Oh, I didn't ask who's hurt you. We all know who's hurt us. Are you so, do you lack such self-awareness that you don't know who you have hurt? In many cases, the people who have hurt us and have also done wrong, uh, and we've also done them wrong and hurt them. Well, uh, my, my child uh, said her to this. My mother said her to this. My brother uh, said her to this. Or uh, this person across the church said her to this. Yeah, but what did you do to them? You have thought through in great detail. You have laid in bed at night and you've replayed in their mind their offense against you. But when was the last time you laid there and you played through your mind what you did to offend them? Oh, we're so good at knowing the wrongs against us and our selfishness, but we never take the time to address what we may have done to hurt them. Turn over to Matthew chapter 7 and look at verse number 1. Oh, I'm trying to preach right where we're living today, and I'm trying to challenge traditional thought. I'm trying to challenge selfish and prideful thinking. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Judge not that ye be not judged. This is all part of the same sermon Jesus preached. For with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. And with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thine brother's eye? But considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye. Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Now, we don't use terms like beam and moat anymore, but to use uh, everyday English, someone's got a speck of dirt in their eye, you got a telephone pole hanging out of your right eye, and you're like, hey, come over here, man, I'm going to get that piece of dirt. Hold, oh, pull it open, pull it open, I, I think I got it. And you got a telephone pole sticking out your right eye. And Jesus is, and this is hyperbolic, but Jesus is like, look, get the beam out of your eye, get the splinters out of your eye, get the dust particles out of your eye before you go worrying about what is in the next guy's eye. Now listen, it is healthy. Oh, what I'm about to share. Oh, I wish I could just 
open up your heart and write this on the table of your heart and get each one of you to do this. Because if each one of you will take seriously what I'm about to share with you and put it into practice, oh my, your relationship status would just skyrocket with so many people. So many people have broken relationships because they aren't going to do what I'm about to say. I sure hope you'll... uh, Look... Find something to write this down. Go back on the live stream, on the archive, and get it and write it down and put these things into practice. All right? It is always healthy to step back in a broken relationship. It is always healthy to see an injured or broken relationship through the other person's point of view. All right? You know what I do as a counselor? April and Miranda, can you two come up here and help me? I'm not going to have you say anything. Just come on up here and help me. April and Miranda are friends and um, been friends since they were little girls and and uh, Miranda's in my house a lot, hanging out with April. And Miranda's almost adopting it. She's got her own family, but she's almost her family. Miranda, if you could stand over here and face April, all right? Breathe, girls. I'm not going to make you say anything, all right? Breathe. Let's say that these two girls, they have a big blowout, all right? And she calls April names, and April calls her names, and they're really upset with each other. And, and uh, those unmet expectations that led to frustration, led to anger, that led to, uh, let's see, what was the next one? Bitterness that led to hatred, okay? And so uh, they come to speak with me. You know what I do as a counselor? I try to help her see it from her point of view, and I try to help her see it from her point of view. And I do this with husbands and wives. I do this with parents and children. I do this with uh, church members who don't like each other. And you know what's really mature in the Lord is if you don't need a pastor because you yourself are able to take a step back and think, hmm, I wonder how they see it. I wonder why they feel the way they do. Let me set my pride to the side and let me walk around over here and let me try to see it from this person's perspective. And I bet if I did that, that would help me to better understand where they're coming from so that this maybe could be repaired. But you know what? At the end of the day, we have to prioritize peace over our pride. And you know why most of us never fix broken relationships? Because we prioritize pride over peace. And until you're willing to get your priorities right, your relationships are going to continue to stay broken. Thank you, girls. So how do we do this? What are some questions we can ask that will help us see it from the other person's perspective? Write these five questions down if you can. Number one, how did I come across? How did I come across? You know, some of us, are we lack self-awareness. And um, a hundred people could look at you and think, you know what, that was really not kind, the way you just acted. And we're like, well, I didn't do anything wrong. We just lack the self-awareness. We don't understand how we come across. Number two, what was my body language the last several times we were together? What was my body language the last several times we were together? Let's say here that um, Bill, Bill's sitting down here on the second row. Again, love Bill, never had a problem with Bill. Bill and I are buddies, all right? Let's say that I just made up my mind one day that I didn't like Bill anymore. You know, long before I ever say anything to Bill, probably what I'm going to do is I'm going to avoid him. I'm going to, he comes in the room, I'm going to conveniently find another place to be or something else to do. You with me? You listening? I'm going to, You know, he's going to say hello and I'm going to keep my answers to one word or I'm not going to say anything at all. And you know what? 
He may have a problem with me because my body language now is communicating to him, I have a problem with you. You say, well, I didn't, I didn't say anything wrong. You know, your body language speaks a lot louder than your tongue does. Third question. What emotional injuries in their past may have led to their sensitivity toward what I said or did? What emotional injuries in their past may have led to their sensitivity toward what I said or did? One more time. What emotional injuries in their past may have led to their sensitivity toward what I said or did. I talked about a few weeks ago uh, uh, punching someone as hard as I possibly could in the arm, and the next time, all, next day all I've got to do is poke that bruise, and it feels like I punched them all over again. So many people walk through life with a bruise in their spirit, they're warped in their spirit, and you take some little shot at them, you, you, you poke fun at them, uh, you, you, you molest them, you bother them in some way, and you know what? You're just teasing them. You're just teasing them, but all of a sudden, oh, there's this injury that runs deep that has nothing to do with you, and now they're offended at you, and you think, well, they're just being so sensitive. Well, maybe there's a reason why they're so sensitive. Did you ever stop and think that if you had went through the same hurt and trauma they went through in life, maybe you would be just as injured? Here's a fourth question. Did I intentionally or unintentionally ignore them or treat them in some kind of inferior way? Did I intentionally or unintentionally ignore them or treat them in some kind of inferior way? As it relates to church, you think to yourself, I have brought potato salad to the Memorial Day picnic every year for the last 25 years. And now that person is bringing potato salad because they're trying to outdo me. They think they can outdo me with theirs. You see, people get upset over that kind of thing. Yep. Yep. That person parked in my parking spot. I have been parking in that parking spot for the last 15 years at this church. That's my pew! I don't care if my name's not written on it. I sit there every week. And they knew it. And they're doing it. They're driving crazy. Now someone's giving you a cold shoulder and you think, what did I do to offend them? Did I intentionally or unintentionally ignore them or treat them in some kind of inferior way? You ever send somebody a text message and they didn't get back to you? Did that ever hurt your feelings? Can we be transparent this morning? How many of you have ever had someone ignore a text message and that really got to you? Be honest. Hold your hands up. All right, let me ask it this way. How many of you here have ever either intentionally or unintentionally ignored someone's text message and hurt their feelings? We've all been on both sides of that, haven't we? Number five, have I communicated well, have I communicated well with them and told them how their actions make me feel since the offense took place? Here's another way to word that. Are they even aware that I am offended? Are they even aware that I am offended? The old adage is, you know, us men are so emotionally dumb, like a brick. I mean, we're just... Maybe some men aren't, but most men are. And You know, since the wife's body language isn't right, and you're like, Honey, what's wrong? 
And then from the other room, maybe we mute the TV. Honey, what's wrong? Nothing's wrong. Oh, okay, nothing's wrong. I'll mute the TV. <laughs> Amateur marriage advice. If she says nothing's wrong, she's lying. <laughs> Amen? The way you fix it is you walk in the room and you preach a sermon to her about how lying is a sin. <laughs> don't do that, okay? Don't really, don't. Don't do that, all right? But she's not telling you the truth. You know what she's saying is everything's wrong. Get in here and talk to me. And sometimes people are offended and we're just so oblivious that we're not willing to deal with it. Now, when we answer these questions honestly, what we often find is that we may be as innocent, we may not be as innocent as we once believed ourselves to be. Who have you offended? Who have you offended? Well, don't say things like, well, they're just overly sensitive. Or, who cares? They'll get over it. Or, I'm just someone who speaks the truth. If that hurts their feelings, then they just need to grow up. Statements like these are immature and lead us away from healing the broken relationships with a brother or sister in Christ. Letter A, our offenses. Letter B, our offering. Our offering. We're going to pick up speed here with the message and we'll be done in just a few minutes. Look at Matthew 5, verse 24. The Bible says, Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. One more reason that many people go to church is to soothe their conscience. They've hurt many people along life's path, but they're not willing to deal with it. So they show up to church and they serve at church or they write some big check and drop it in the plate, and they think, well, well, here, I'm giving to the church. Or, well, look here, my, I'm performing for the Lord at the church, and so uh, this covers my multitude of sins. And listen, let me remind you what Samuel told Saul, King Saul, in 1 Samuel 15, 22. He said, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Before God wants you to serve at the church or put your offering in the plate at the church, He would rather you leave your gift at the altar and go reconcile that offense with a brother who you have offended, and then come back and give the offering to the Lord. Before God wants you to be of service at the church for the Lord, He wants your relationships to be right. Where is the priority? The priority is not serving at church. The priority is not giving at church. The priority is your relationships with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Our offering. Mark chapter 12, for time's sake, we won't read it. But Mark 12, 41 through 44, we find the story of Jesus standing outside the treasury. A little widow throws in, a young widow, or rather an old widow, throws in two mites, less than a penny, into the plate while these other uh, Pharisees are throwing in large volumes of money. And Jesus said, she outgave all of them. Why? Because she gave from a pure heart, they gave from a corrupt heart. How are your motives? What are your motives in giving? Oh, may we not give uh, to somehow uh, right some wrong that we've done with someone else. No, let's go leave our gift at the altar. Let's go repair that relationship. And then let's come and serve the Lord. Number three, and lastly notice, our preparation for a blessing. Our preparation for a blessing. Let's look at 25 and 26. And really, in my preparation for the sermon, this is where I began and then uh, decided to give it to us last as our closing thought. Look at 25. Agree with thine adversary quickly, whilst thou art in the way with him. Can we read that first phrase of that verse 25 together? Ready? Here we go. 
Agree with thine adversary quickly. Oh, we can do better than that. Here we go. Agree with thine adversary quickly. What is God's, what is God's blessing? It comes when we agree with our adversary quickly. You've got to fix these things. Look at verse 26. Verily I say unto thee, uh, uh, unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the utmost farthing. That means pay the price and fix the relationship. I want to invite you into a world where relationships with others are at peace and you do not live with animosity between you and others. Oh, what a great place. What a great place when you get along with your parents and your children. What a great place when God puts peace in your heart with others in church. What a great, what a great place when you can walk through life and you don't have to avoid people or block people on social media or hide things from people on social media because you can't stand them. What a great place to live. Let me invite you into that world. How did you get there? Letter A, we must purge pride. We must purge pride. You gotta deal with pride. You gotta prioritize peace over pride. You gotta put your pride to the side and say, I am willing to eat crow. I am willing to apologize for what I've done in order to make peace. I came up with this little quip sometime back while I was studying, uh, for, uh, 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 on the topic of pride, doing my own Bible study on pride. Here it is. Pride brings contention. Pride brings contention. Then pride brings destruction. First, pride first brings contention. Then pride brings destruction. Consider Proverbs 13.10. Only by pride cometh contention, but with what, with the well-advised is wisdom. So, first pride brings contention. If there is contention uh, inside of a relationship that you have, there is pride that is present. I have yet to see a husband and wife have a fight who didn't have pride in the mix. Now, maybe it was all the husband or it was all the wife or maybe it was 90% one or the other. Uh, but listen, where there is contention, there is pride. Only by pride cometh contention. Listen to me. You may have someone in this church you don't get along with. And let me tell you why you don't get along with them. Because there's pride Pride in the relationship. There's pride there. That pride might be more you than them. It might be more them than you. But there is pride there. I'm tired of hearing people say, well, I just have a personality clash. You know what you really have? You have a pride clash. Oh, I said it. You have a pride clash. Let me tell you right now. I've studied personalities in great depth. And I'm going to tell you, I've seen all types of personalities married to each other in the closest union two people can have. And you know what? I've seen all types of personalities work with each other. Now, some personalities are a little bit more difficult to get along with than others. But can I tell you this? If you'll set pride to the side, anybody can get along with anybody. You say, well, not you haven't met my brother or sister. You know what? Then maybe they have the pride problem, but you need to deal with that. Only by pride cometh contention. What's the end result of pride? It brings destruction. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goeth before destruction. Pride always leads in destruction. If you're going to fix relationships, you must deal with pride. You must purge it from your life. Letter B. We must pursue peace. We must pursue peace. God does not want you to live with strife between you and a brother or sister in the Lord. Let me be very clear. Jesus' command in Matthew 5 is not about the lost. It's not about the heathen. It's about the saved. You're to pursue peace with those who are saved. Rather, He wants you to go out and pursue peace. Romans 12, 18, If it be possible, as much as life in you, live peaceably 
with all men. Romans 14.19 Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one might edify another. Christian, today I want to ask you this in closing. Are you bent toward peace? Or are you built on pride? Are you burying your head in the sand and pretending that you haven't hurt anybody? Or have you been honest enough to see it? Are you willing to deal with it? Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. Every head bowed, every eye closed this morning. I want to ask just a series of questions. How many of you here have put your faith in Christ alone to be your Savior? And if you were to die today, you know for certain you'd go to heaven, not because of who you are or what you've done, but because Jesus died on the cross for you, and you've put your faith alone in Him. You've received that gift of eternal life. If that's your testimony, would you just hold your hand up right where you are? I know I'm going to heaven. I have believed in Christ alone to be my Savior. Would you hold your hand up? Thank you. You may put them down. Thank you for that testimony. How many of you here this morning would say, Pastor, I was not able to raise my hand a moment ago. And if I'm honest, if I die today, I'm not sure where I would spend eternity. I'm just really not sure. Pastor, would you pray for me? I don't know where I'm going. If that's you today, I do not want to embarrass you. That's why everybody's heads are bowed and everybody's eyes are closed except mine. But I sure would like to pray for you. I promise not to call out your name or point you out. But if you do not know where you'd spend eternity, I just simply want to pray for you. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I don't know where I'm going. Is there one here today? I just don't know where I'd spend eternity. Please don't leave here today without getting that matter settled. After the service this morning, I'll be standing in the back of the room. I would love to help you get that matter settled if you don't know. How many of you here this morning would say, Pastor, God has laid it on my heart that there's somebody that I have offended. Maybe they've offended you too, but you know you have a part in it. Pastor, pray for me that God would help me to obey this command to go and be reconciled to others. There's a person in my life, God's made it clear, and I need to deal with this. If that's you, would you hold your hand up right now? Would you be honest with yourself and the Lord? I know there's somebody I need to go make a matter right with. I've hurt someone. I need to get that right. You can put your hands down. Is there someone here who says, Pastor, I should have raised my hand the first time, and I didn't. God's working on me. In my pride, I didn't raise my hand that first time, but I know there's someone. God's put a name in my heart. By raising your hand, you're not admitting that you're going to do a thing with it. You're just simply asking me to pray for you. Is there one? I didn't raise my hand. I should have. I know there's someone I've hurt, and I need to deal with that. I see your hands. I'll pray for you. Lord God, would you guide us through this time of invitation? Help us, Lord, to put the truths we've covered today into practice. Help us to be men and women who go forth and reconcile those who we've hurt. May we be peacemakers. May we live with be at peace with all men. Lord, may this altar be filled today with people who pray for reconciliation. Some here need to pray for reconciliation with someone who is filled with pride and not willing to help them. Others, Lord, need to confess the sin of pride and, Lord, go forth and do what's necessary. But, Lord, give us peace in our relationships. May we pursue peace with all men. In Jesus' name.